Well, in thinking about how to introduce this, uh, this passage in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 2, as I was preparing, I, I had this, this question that, um, that I read that just, just really got me thinking. I, uh, maybe you've had that same experience. Um, and here was the question, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by asking it uh, to you. What is the greatest blessing that the gospel has to, has to offer? Now think about that. What is the greatest blessing that the gospel has to offer? Or, or you could say it in a, in a different way. What is, the, what is distinct? What is distinctive about Christianity? What, what does Christianity offer to, to the world? And, and I suppose you probably get a lot of different, a lot of different answers. Um, and, and a lot of them could be, could be right, but that question is, uh, is, is guided by that, the word greatest. What is the greatest blessing or the greatest benefit? I, I guess some would say, you know, Christianity offers the world, uh, uh, morality or, or a system of, of right and wrong. And there, there's plenty wrong, uh, that, that you could point to in the world. Maybe a kind of right way to live, and that if everyone would just would just follow the Ten Commandments, everyone would just follow the Bible, then then the world would be a better place, and and that's that's true. Uh, others might say that that Christianity has uh, has true fulfillment to offer. It gives you purpose in um, in life. The the gospel kind of fills that God shaped hole in in everybody's in everybody's heart. Um, it meets your needs. Uh, you have a abundant life in uh, in Christ, and and that's that's true as well. Uh, maybe some would say it's the promise of uh, of a new body or or a perfect earth. They they see all of the sickness and disease and and uh, um, a tragedy of, of of the fall all over the world, or 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 maybe some would say it's heaven. You know, it, it's the kingdom. Uh, because of Christ, the kingdom is going to be ushered in, and, and heaven is 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 the blessing, and and all of that's true. But but while all of those promises um, are blessings of the gospel, they all come from one overarching benefit, and that is the forgiveness of sins. There's one great benefit that Christianity offers that transcends all others, and that is the forgiveness of, of sins. The reason that we lack morality is because of sin. The root of, of unfulfillment is, is because we, we, we need our sins forgiven. The cause of disease and, and corruption and the one thing that will be absent in the kingdom and in heaven is sin. It's unforgiving sin that actually sends people to hell. I mean, hell is occupied by by people whose sins have never been or ever will be forgiven. And heaven, on the other hand, is occupied not by perfect people in and of themselves, but individuals whose sins have all been forgiven. That is man's greatest need. And the Bible this morning proclaims in big, bold letters that Jesus Christ can forgive your sins. I mean, you think about how simple that statement is. 
and, and yet how profound. Jesus Christ can forgive all of your sins. Every one that you've ever committed, every one that you, you didn't know you committed, every one that you ever will commit, whether it's in, it's in omission, you know, what you do wrong, commission, uh, I'm sorry, reverse that, commission the things that you do wrong, omission the things that, that you should do but, but you fail to do, your attitude, your heart, all of those things Jesus Christ can forgive, past, present, and, and future and in Mark chapter 2, Jesus declares that he has the authority to forgive a paralytic's sin. And not only a paralytic's sin, but your sin and my sin and anyone who will come to him. And he sends this paralyzed man forgiven and walking away from the encounter. He sends religious people into, uh, into a frenzy and... And criticism, and he, and he leaves a crowd wondering in, in amazement. I mean, every religion since creation, every wisdom book, every, every religious philosopher, in some way or another, has, has aimed at this fundamental need of, of every human being. I mean, their system of works, the patterns of living, the enlightenment that they promise through their wisdom, all promise the same thing some way to deal with your, with your sin. But none of them has ever been able to deliver. Jesus, on the other hand, can forgive your sin and will forgive your sin if you'll turn to Him. Hebrews 9.14 makes a, makes a profound statement. It says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, and, and pay attention to these next words, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. True forgiveness does what all other religions and what all other systems in the world can't do. It cleanses you, it cleanses your conscience, the very... The deepest part of you cleanses your conscience and truly frees you to, to serve and live for God. The innermost part of your soul that accuses you or excuses you when nobody else is around, that you try to silence, that you try to pump up with, with positive thinking, whatever it is, the innermost part of you, the forgiveness of Christ sets you free because your conscience is truly cleansed. It's not based on what what uh, someone else tells you or confirms for you, you, you know it. It's, it's, it's truly clean. It's replaced with an unshakable awareness that, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, from a defiled conscience, from fear of God, from being aware that, that you sinned to knowing that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when a man or a woman is cleansed there, they know it, and, and they don't fear the fear of judgment. And because of that, they're, they're set free. We are set free to live for Christ. And there's no value high enough that can be placed on laying your head on your pillow at night knowing that, that you are forgiven, forever forgiven. And nothing will ever change that. And that's the gift that Christ offer, offers, and that's the gift that we have 
to be able to to give to other people whenever we share Jesus Christ with them. And the good news is the power of God unto salvation unto all who believe. And that's the reason that Jesus came to die in sinners' place, in a sinner's place, to satisfy God's justice. And because of that, God can forgive sinners who repent and believe. And, and the message of the Christian gospel is Jesus saves. Have you ever seen that written on um, uh, in spray paint? It's all over uh, bridges in West Virginia. I don't know if we you all do that here in Virginia, but everywhere you go, it's like when I mean, you're thinking about this Christian graffiti. Is, is that is that a good thing? You know, believers out there trying to share the message of Jesus, uh, painting, uh, violating the law, of painting Jesus saves. Well. The message is, is true. Jesus came to forgive sinners. I mean, that's, that's the core of the message, the core of what we're about. I mean, you can say it's all about unto the glory of God, so, so that Jesus can be exalted in heaven. It, 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 you can say it's, it's when, when people experience that, then they'll, they'll, they'll no longer love their sin and they'll, they'll love God, but at the heart of it, is that Jesus saves. He, he forgives you of, of your sin. And in the passage that we're going to see today, Jesus returns from the, from the outskirts of, of Galilee to Peter's house in, in Capernaum. And when the people find out that he's there, they come from all around to see him. He, he's, he's like, a, he's like a, an attraction, a sideshow uh, to them. Some are seeking healing. Some are just seeking to try to figure out, you know, now, what everybody else is excited about, and the house is packed full of people. We're going to read, it, it says that, 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 that people can't move, they can't even get through the door. And yet outside of this crowd, with Jesus on the inside, is a paralyzed man with four friends looking to, to get in. And realizing that their friend can't get in, and because of the crowd, the four men do whatever is necessary to bring their friend to Jesus. So if you're not there, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to read these 12 verses, and then we're going to, we're going to see what God wants to teach us from it today. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. It says, When he, that's Christ, had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them, and, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, being unable to, to get to him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, in their minds, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, he said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, 
pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. What a what a, an exciting passage. I mean, it's, it's, it's got everything. You've got a crowd. You've got a bunch of complainers. You've got four friends digging a hole in the roof. You've got a man who has a genuine need. You have a, a compassionate Savior who meets that need and then proves to everyone what he's able to do and the authority that he has. And Mark's already shown us this kingdom authority. He has the authority over this, the spiritual realm. He casts out the demons. He has kingdom power. He has the ability to raise up Peter's mother-in-law. And he can reverse the curse. He sends out the, the, the leper the last time we, we looked in, in Mark uh, on kingdom witness. And now Mark wants us to see and wants us to understand kingdom forgiveness. Yet Jesus has the ability to forgive sins, which is the greatest miracle of all. What if you truly believed? I mean, it was an unshakable truth in your heart that Jesus would offer the forgiveness of sins to anyone who would come to Him. I don't mean just intellectually. I mean, you really believe that. What would you be willing to do to introduce someone to, to the Savior? What obstacle would discourage you from getting someone to Christ? Well, Mark in this passage shows us the source of forgiveness is Christ, and he does that through four persistent friends that, that, that have faith beyond an obstacle. And in that teaches us what links that we should go so that others can encounter the life-changing power of, of Jesus Christ. The story has three parts. There's a setting where Jesus is in his house with a, with a crowd, there's an encounter, both with this paralytic man and then also some scribes, and then there's the reaction to everyone after Jesus, Jesus moves. And, and when you put all that together, there's, there's a lesson about the source of, of kingdom uh, forgiveness. There's, a, there's an inquiring crowd in verses 1 and 2. There are these... These four faithful friends, in verses 3 through 5, there's, a, there's several cynical scribes that are there in the mix, and then there is one forgiving Savior. And at the end, everyone is astonished by Jesus' words and, and, his, and his work. Let's look at this inquiring crowd. Look, if you will, at verse 1. It says, when he come back to Capernaum several days afterwards... Um, it, he, he's coming back from that unpopulated area because of the miracle of the of the the cleansing of the of the leper. I mean, you remember the leper disobeyed Jesus, doesn't go to the priest, and begins to spread uh, what Christ did everywhere to the point that Jesus can't do what he intended to do, which was go around and preach the gospel. Everybody wants wants healing, and now he's returned, and the people again are clamoring to see him. And it's clear that Jesus was the attraction. Look at verse 2. It says, Many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even near the door. I mean, they're crowded inside the house. They're crowded outside of the house. It's just, it's packed. It, it, um, it reminds me, uh, um, Woody, of, um, of, of being in the, the, um, 
the train system in the middle of, of Beijing. I mean, you are there and there is no room whatsoever. I mean, you're packed in the middle of that. And yet, look at what Jesus is doing. He's, he's the attraction and they want something, but he doesn't give them what they want. He gives them what they need. Look at what it says at the end of verse 2. He was speaking the word to them. He's providing instruction. Now, I'm sure some of the crowd generally, generally wanted to hear, but for the most part, this crowd is spiritually indifferent, and I'll show you uh, the, the proof of that in a minute. They want the kingdom. They don't want the king. Uh, they're like the group in John 6 that, that wants, the, wants the bread. They, they, they want the healing. They, they don't really care about the healer. And the crowd, what's interesting is at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, the crowd actually is a bad thing. It functions as a barrier, not a blessing to Christ's real ministry. I mean, think about it. The crowd drives Jesus out of Galilee and the other towns so he, so he can't preach at the end of chapter 1, and that now the house is full and the crowd is at the door so that a man who genuinely has a need and genuinely believes in the Messiah, I'll show you that in a minute, he wants to come to Christ and he can't get in because of the crowd. I mean, you find this condemnation of the crowd throughout all of Christ's ministry. I mean, Jesus is always commanding people not to tell others what he had, what he had done. I mean, he speaks in parables. He says he does that so he can speak only to those that, that God's revealing himself. He disperses uh, crowds of uh, fickle followers in Luke 14. It says he's got this massive crowd following him. And then Jesus turns to the crowd and says, If any man will come after me, he must deny father, mother, brother, sister, yea, even his own life, or he cannot be my disciple. I mean, that's not a very uh, effective church growth strategy. I mean, if your goal is to draw a crowd... That, that, that's gonna disperse them. It's not gonna, it's not gonna draw them. It, it's almost counterintuitive. I mean, doesn't Jesus want the gospel to, to go to everyone? And yet you see the crowd is a bad thing over and over. And that's because Jesus is not concerned with drawing an apathetic crowd. He's concerned with granting forgiveness to people who sense their need of it. And remember that whenever you're, you're in, you're evaluating what God is, is doing in the world. I saw a picture this past week of a, of a charismatic, um, uh, you know, uh, faith, uh, health, wealth, gospel, false teacher over in, over in Africa. And I mean, it, it was far, as far as the eye could see were people that were there listening to this man preach, um, that uh, that Jesus will will heal all of their diseases and that he'll 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 bring them wealth and 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 problems and and totally absent of the of the real gospel that that Christ is the answer for your sin and that that he can that he can forgive it remember that whenever you see the crowd in the bible and when you see the crowd in the world it, it it's not a good measuring tool for evaluating what God is doing. Um, using the crowd as your spiritual compass will always lead you south. When I was a youth pastor, um, I thought about this in, in, in seeing this point. Um, 
we were always competing against uh, whatever was the hot new thing going, wherever the wherever the new youth group was, that's kind of where the where the where the crowd kind of of you know floated around to wherever the the largest group of you know of friends. Where are you going? I don't know. Where are you going? Well, I'm going over here. Well, I'll go if you go. And you're always competing with that, and it shifted. And in the beginning, um, we sat down with our you know the ministry team and said, okay, uh, what do we do? How do we how do we draw them here? Um, you know, we, we try to keep up with the, with the Joneses, as they say, and, and offer a better mousetrap, bigger events, more fun-filled activities, better worship, and, and uh, there's nothing wrong with having fun. There, there's nothing wrong with passionate worship. But we were doing that to try to fix the, fix the problem of, of the gravitating crowd. But, but in the end, what, what we found out is, is chasing the crowd. We were actually neglecting the students who genuinely wanted to follow Christ. And so we came up with this theme, you know, feed the hungry and water the thirsty. I mean, that's what we're going to do. We're going to feed the hungry and we're going to water the thirsty. And, and when those individuals get on fire, then, then they'll share that share that that with with others what what honestly what was what was really sad was was how easy it was not only for the children to get uh, the, the students to get caught up in that but but even adults and they would end up following their kids around i, I mean it, i hope it's not a news flash but 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 the biblical order is parents are to lead children not the other way around right i mean i I hate to tell you this if you're under 20, and uh, if, you, if you, you haven't figured this out yet, you'll probably start to figure it out when you get in, in your upper 20s, early 30s. You'll really figure it out whenever you get 40, and it will just grow. I, I hate to tell you, but, um, but you're not as smart as you think you are. <laughs> I, I mean, that's, that's, uh, when you're older, you don't get, you don't get much better. It, it, it's not that, you know, that, that you, you stumble on this, this massive intellect whenever you hit 30 or 40. The difference is that when, when you're older, you just know how dumb you are. <laughs> when you're younger, you don't. You don't realize it. I mean, that's the reason God places authority over you. Be careful chasing the crowd or the happening place. It will like you lead, likely lead you away where God is working. I mean, flash, fly, flash fires burn hot and bright, but, but a paper, you know, a newspaper flame uh, burns out very quickly and leaves a, leaves a pile of ashes. And, and these four men knew that. And that's why they're trying to get beyond the crowd to Christ. So you have some, some faithful friends. Look at verse 3. It says, and they came. This, this is four men bringing to him a paralytic carried by, by four men and being unable to get to him because of the crowd, there's the obstacle again, they removed the roof above him. So you've got this, this crowd and four men, and now a paralyzed man enters the scene. And these men knew their friend's need and wanted to get him to Jesus, but they couldn't get through the door because of the the crowd of, uh, of people. I mean, think about it. Here's another sign of, of the condition of the crowd. I mean, if you were in a crowd like that and you saw four men carrying a, a paralyzed man on a pallet, I mean, wouldn't you 
and you were able-bodied, wouldn't you get out of the way? I mean, wouldn't you actually help that man to to get into Jesus rather than, you know, just just kind of, of blocking the door and, and keeping him out? This story, when it was told in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, it says that they tried different ways to get in. It's like they, they came to the door, uh, uh, you know, uh, excuse me, please, let me through. You know, they, they may have went around the back. I don't know how many entrances there were, but Luke says they tried many ways to get in. And whenever they couldn't, they weren't deterred. They went up on the roof and dug a man-sized hole and then and then lowered this man down on on ropes. I think you we probably heard the story or remember the story uh, to where it's not shocking anymore. I mean, it's not every day that someone digs a hole in the roof, okay, in order to get somebody to get somebody in. I mean, homes in Jesus' day were were square or rectangle, a rectangular, and they had a flat roof. And, and, and they did things on the roof. They, they laid out grain to dry it, or they did washing, or they did other things. And there was an external staircase. The stairs were not inside. They, they were outside. And they had, you know, like stone walls. And then on, on top of those stone walls, they would lay beams just, just across them. And then, just like rafters. And then they would lay down um, thatch, uh, and then earth, uh, dirt, and they would pack that down, and then they would put tiles on on top of that. You could walk on it. Um, it was a one-story home, and there was a great room in the middle, and that's where Jesus is teaching with this external staircase. And, and the men saw that they couldn't get in. So they see the staircase, they climb the roof with the man. I mean, he can't walk. And then they have to remove the tiles and start digging through a combination of mud and, and thatch. I mean, it took some effort. Beyond that, they've got to figure out where Jesus is in the house. You know, I mean, he's in the center room. If they lower him down in the wrong place, he's going to be right in the middle of the crowd. And then they, they still have the same problem. I mean, the size of the hole that they had to dig was four to six feet. I mean, it wasn't just like a little hole so they could peer down in. And then they had to lower him down. I mean, these men had faith that wouldn't be turned away. They didn't use the excuse, well, I mean, we brought, you know, we brought old Joe here, but it must not be God's will because we can't get through. They weren't hindered by the crowd. They, they went around the crowd. I mean, they didn't see a problem. They saw a greater opportunity for God to, to put himself on display. Pastor Ray Stedman um, said uh, said he figured out their names. They were Frank Faith, Harry Hope, Larry Love, and Dan Determination. <laughs> Frank Faith said, I believe we can get this man to Jesus. Harry Hope said, I believe there's hope for this man if we get him there. Larry Love said, I really love this guy. I hate his sin, but I love him. And Dan Determination said, let's roll. What are we waiting on? But it took all four of them. One man couldn't dig the hole and lower the man in. It took all four of these men to get this, this man, who couldn't get there on his own, to Christ. Nothing stopped them. What stops you from going after what God's called you to do? Are you easily discouraged? I can say there's probably periods of time in my life where 
where I, I can get discouraged. I think it's part of the, the human experience. But after going through that discouragement and maybe wallowing around for a while, I always come to the back to, to specific truths. You know, that God is able. I might not be able, but, but God is able. And God loves to work whenever your back's against the wall. When, when human beings, it's impossible for them to do it. I mean, you can see that all through the Old Testament. Do you use difficulties as an excuse not to do hard things? I mean, it's hard at times. It, 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 it's hard to, to share Christ with, with people. Jared and I went out this past week and bought a load of wood off of a fella. And we were talking on the way there. Um, let's look for an opportunity to share Christ with, uh, you know, with this man. And, you know, so you don't just get out of the truck and you say, hey, I'd like to buy that load of wood. And by the way, uh, uh, where are you going to go whenever you die? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? I mean, you know, you... You have conversation, you kind of build up to, uh, to, and you're praying the whole time for an opportunity, and everything was going wonderful. Um, you know, there was, there was connection, and, and we started moving from, from earthly things to more spiritual things, more substantive things. And just about the time that we're getting ready to, to move into to the gospel, this man's father shows up. And... Um, he, he totally, you know, derails the conversation. And so I just keep small talking, hoping that the father's going to leave. You know, this guy's probably in his 30s. And, and the father won't leave. He just stays there and he stays there and he stays there. It was opposition. And, and, and immediately I thought, man, what, how discouraging. I mean, we're, we're, we're almost there. Um, and then I looked at the man and I said, uh, you got any more wood? He said, well, I don't have any right now, but he said, uh, I, I plan on cutting some more. I said, well, I'll tell you what, you cut another load, and you let me know, here's my phone number, you call me when it's done, and we'll come back and, and get it. Um, and the next time I go, I don't have to build a relationship, I can now move more into spiritual things. And if I get there and the Father shows up again, you know what, I'm going to buy another load of wood. <laughs> And if I have to have wood all the way around my house or till the guy gets tired of cutting it, I'm going to share Christ with him. I really am. That's it. Yeah, share Christ with the Father. But what if, what, you say, what if people are indifferent? What if they don't want to listen? So what if they are? I've had people threaten to punch me, throw things, call the police and, and others. I mean, Satan doesn't want people to come to Christ. Don't be surprised whenever he fights, fights against sharing the gospel. And don't be surprised either whenever you press through that, that difficulty and when you don't give up and you're successful that it feels really, really good. Now, I mean, now think about this, back to this, this, this scene. Can you just see the Lord in the middle of this house? He's preaching and teaching. The crowd is there. And all of a sudden, mud starts falling on top of his head. And the fat starts coming down all over people. And they're looking up. They don't know what's going on. And the hole gets bigger and bigger. And then light breaks through. And then all of a sudden, there's a quadriplegic that starts being lowered into the room on a mat and ropes. I mean, at that point, everybody's... Focus is on the man, and Jesus, knowing everybody's focus is on the man, 
seizes that opportunity not only for the man but for the rest of the people there. Look if you would at verse 5. They let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Your sons are forgiven. All eyes are on the paralytic. And Jesus speaks to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And notice what Ashton just said. It was seeing their faith. All of them had faith. The friends had faith that Jesus could heal their friend, or they wouldn't have went to the trouble of doing what they were doing. I mean, this man had faith, or he wouldn't have agreed to the plan. I mean, think of the embarrassment of the of the spectacle. You wouldn't do that unless you believe that Jesus could really heal you. This is the first mention of faith in Mark. And I want you to notice it's linked to action. Notice also that Jesus says, seeing their faith. Seeing their faith. What did he see? I mean, is there some glow that God can see that nobody else can see whenever there's genuine faith? i tell you what, what they saw. He saw their act of digging the hole. He saw their, their, the fact that they couldn't get through because of the crowd and they were willing to find a way in lowering the man down. And in the Bible, faith is always linked to action. James says faith without works is dead. It acts. It, it overcomes. It, it pursues. It, it strives. King Gear said curiosity crowded the classroom, but it was faith that dug through the roof to bring the paralytic to the feet of Christ. And that's how you, you prove that you truly believe what you say. Do you believe that Jesus can save people from their sins? Do you believe that, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? Yeah, I do too. But then do our actions indicate that? Do our actions indicate that like these, like these four men? I mean, you can't say that, that you believe that and, and just not witness to others. You cannot truly say, I know God will save any sinner who trusted Him for salvation and then never tell others about Him. Think about how hollow that is. So we do believe that. But then do our actions prove that, that we believe that? Notice what else Jesus says here. He specifically says to the paralytic, son, he sees their faith, he sees their faith, and he says to the paralytic, the one man, son, your sins are forgiven. Not to the rest, but to the paralytic. Jesus saw the friend's faith in their actions, but he also saw... In the paralyzed man, a faith that was visible to him that nobody else could see. Jesus, knowing this man's heart, saw that he believed that Christ could do more than heal him. He believed that Jesus could save him from his sins. Or Jesus would have never said that. I mean, he saw in this man the real deal. I shared this with you before, but one of the things that attracted me to, to Theta Lewis was there was something that was different about her. Or something I couldn't put my finger on, but, but it was real. I mean, she radiated the Lord in the, in the way that she spoke, in the way that she acted. I could see it in the way that she looked at me. I could hear it in her voice. And people will see that in you, if it's real. I mean, the people you share Jesus with can really tell if you believe that He can save them. 
and they'll see him in you if you know that he's that he's done the same for your soul. It's the most powerful witnessing tool there is. You can have the best crafted plan. You can have uh, the perfectly woven uh, system of verses. And if people don't see Christ in you, that can fall flat. And you can also mess up every verse on the, the Romans road. It, 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 can, it can look you know, more like the Romans goat path. And, and, and you can fumble over everything. But if they see the love of Jesus Christ in you, it'll reach them in some way. And the best way to become a better witness for Christ is to fall in love with Him yourself. But if that love's not in your heart, not only will it not communicate whatever you share the Word, you may even find yourself in the critical crowd resenting it whenever you see God giving those benefits to others. Look at verses 6 and, and, and 7. It says, But some of the scribes who were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, there's this group sitting in the crowd. They're, they're specifically delineated by God. They're, they're part of the crowd, but, but they're a group within the crowd who didn't move when the paralyzed man was, was trying to get in. They're listening to, to, the, to the teaching. And in doing so, it was to criticize. I'm sure none of you ever do that. You don't ever listen to a sermon and, and pick it apart, whether it's my grammar or otherwise, which would be easy to pick apart a lot of times. But that's what these guys are doing. Do you know what they're mad at? They're, they're, they're angry that Jesus didn't do it their way. They're, they're angry that, that, the, that the love of Christ transcended their, their system in some ways. They're sitting there. They, they never move. I mean, of course, you say, give him a break. If somebody would, uh, you know, bust a hole in the ministry center roof right now and start loading, uh, you know, somebody down, it might be shocking. It might take a moment to come to your senses. But, but their first reaction is not uh, pity for this man. It's not compassion for him. It's not rejoicing over what Jesus says. It's, it, it's criticism. I mean, they could have jumped up and, 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 and lifted a hand, but... But instead, they criticize. I mean, these men are the real paralytics in this room. It's not the man that's being, that's being lowered. They're spiritually paralyzed. And they didn't care about him, and Jesus didn't care about their system. He cared about the man's soul. And you can tell what, what people truly care about, about by what makes them upset. If you're more concerned about how someone comes to Christ... Instead of the fact that, that they come, it tells you that, that you've got a wrong focus. I mean, people dying without the Lord is far more important than, than if others follow your system of expectations. I mean, I know that that's, that's like getting right down in your lunchbox, but, but it's to me as well. If you get more exercised about the way people do things than, and how they say it, than whether 
than whether people are, are being reached for Christ. You have a focus problem. Show me how much you love the lost by witnessing to them and, and spending time praying for them. And then I may listen to the criticism or the, man, you could have done it this way or that way. I mean, think of the people who would be in the kingdom if all of the effort or half of the effort that was spent tweaking and, and picking, if half of that effort was spent trying to reach them for the Lord. And by the way, the scribes, while they had the wrong heart, they, they, they had the right statement. Look at what it says in verse 7. Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. <laughs> Only God can forgive sins. But because of their focus, they were missing the fact that Jesus was God standing right there in the midst of them. And when you have the wrong focus, you can miss God standing right in the midst of, of whatever it is that, that, you're, that you're involved in. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forgive sins. And basically what they're saying, I mean, there's only two choices here. Either Jesus is a blasphemer or he's God. I mean, he puts the knife to their throat. There's no wiggle room here. A priest can't say this. A prophet can't say this. These are the words of God. So either Jesus is a blasphemer or he is God and able to forgive sins. And their conclusion was he's a blasphemer. Now, they're, they're, they're too chicken-livered to say it out loud, so they just reason in their heart, but God can read our hearts, can't he? And so Jesus clears that question up for them. Look at verse 9. He says, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your son, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out of sight of everyone. Can you imagine the stupor on the face of the crowd? I mean, they're clamoring, and, and, and this man just gets up. I, I'm sure the crowd parted at that point. They're watching him. You know, what, what in the world just happened? Jesus confirms who he is by his ability to, to heal, to do something on the outward, confirming what he's able to do inwardly he's proving that he can forgive sin by proving he is god alone by doing this this miracle there are three separate commands in verse 11 get up pick up go home and he did it instant total unmistakable display of god's ability and luke says as that happened as he left as he went out of sight in verse 12, they were all amazed and were, were glorifying God. And here you see the forgiving Savior. I would say that, that this man was probably even eager to make a contribution to repair the hole in the roof. He, he may have even been willing to get up there himself with his new legs and his new arms. And they were all amazed. He said, we've never seen anything like this. 
And Jesus did that miracle and all the other miracles to show that he was God so that he could say that he was the one who came to forgive sinners. And not only to forgive them, but to provide the sacrifice that was necessary for God to be able to forgive him. And you know what? Jesus is still doing that very thing. He's still willing and able to forgive sins, and he's still forgiving sins right in our midst. He still says to spiritual paralytics, Son, your sins can be forgiven. And he'll say it to you if you repent and believe. Don't you bow your heads. The source of kingdom forgiveness is Jesus Christ. There are four characters in this scene. Where are you in it? Are you part of the the inquisitive crowd? It's kind of seeing what's going on. Maybe what, what God has to offer you whenever you come and listen. Are you um, are you in the faithful friend group? Do you let your actions prove what you say you believe, like the faithful friends? I really believe that God can save and and wants to save. Don't don't let obstacles to, uh, discourage you to the point that that you that you stop doing. Don't grow weary in well doing. Buy, a, buy another load of wood and another load of wood. I hope not, but are you in the, the cynical scribe group? Do you find it easier in your heart? You may never say it out loud, but do you find it easier to criticize, to nitpick rather than pray and work? Do you, Are you a, as it was said once, are you a, are you a grace hunter? Do you look for the grace of God operating in people's lives or in what's going on? Or are you a sin sniffer? <laughs> do you hunt for, for God doing something good? Or, or do, you, do you sniff out what, what may be wrong, even if it's the, the minor part? Do you need your sins forgiven? I proclaim to you this morning, based upon the authority of God in heaven, that if you will repent and believe, Jesus Christ can forgive your sins and cleanse your conscience to where you can lay down at night and know there is therefore now no condemnation that resides upon you. Father, as we come before you, we praise you for your word. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be more like these four faithful friends. Help me to not see obstacles, but opportunities. Father, guard us, guard me from, from, from the ease of criticism. Lord, keep me from, from, from becoming a cynical per- person. Help me to look for what you're doing rather than how others fail. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here this morning that the weight of their sins is bearing down upon their heart, 
that they would come to Jesus' feet and repent and believe and leave today transformed. Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us and for the clarity of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.